me the first shot again. <laughs> Please notice the title. That's the key to where I'm wanting to walk with some things tonight. So the title very simply is a historical understanding of revelations. This is a historical walk through revelations. That is something that is little known out there, but we'll get into it in just a minute. So what I want to do is let's start with a word. Amen? All right. You got, how many don't have notes? You didn't get any notes on your way in? You all have notes? Good. You already know it's going to be a long night, don't you? <laughs> it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. We're going to stop right there. We're going to be going into much more than that. This is a beginning. This is a start. And as we start our first session, it's extremely important that I start out by noting a couple things. I really do especially because you have not really heard me explain Revelation from this viewpoint in the 28 years that I've been here. Uh, I've shared on Revelations and patches and, and segments here and there, but I've never really gotten into the teaching of the historical understanding of this. So I've, I've spent the summer building and writing and typing and all this other fun stuff. So let me warn you in advance that the interpretation that we will be looking at in the book of Revelation is probably radically different from any other interpretation that I know of on a public market today. Honestly, if you do a little bit digging, though, <laughs> which is the thing that I really hope you will do, uh, you should you'll realize that you will find that what I'm about to share has been in the chat, been in the church for the past thousands and some years. But on the popular book market, the view that I'll be sharing with you is really quite unknown with what's out there. On the popular book mark, uh, on the book market, uh, if you're a regular reader of the Christian books, the interpretation that I'm about to give you is going to be different than probably anything you've ever heard. So here's the thing. I, I have met people who have settled down into their view of revelations that when I present this or I talk about this, they can feel threatened by what I have to say. So I'm sort of putting out a warning, a disclaimer in advance, that if you happen to disagree with, with, with any one word I say, Please, please, please allow me to speak without stopping throughout these sessions. Then you can ask, you know, whether you agree or disagree. The nature of this course is gradually unfolding, especially as we, first of all, lay down the foundation 
and the principles, and then we begin to build on that. That is why I like to express the fact that to disagree at the very beginning is really kind of unfair, okay? I, I mean, even if you feel that I'm totally wrong, not a problem. Just hold your peace, love me anyways, please, and allow the Holy Spirit to tell you whether I'm wrong or right, not a problem. You will have a million questions if you have any other views of Revelation. So what I'm asking you to do ahead of time is that you write the questions down. And if they are not answered by the time we're done, then come to me and I'll do my best to answer them. The other thing is I'm asking you is to please don't write them as big questions when you write them down but more as a note, because what I have found that when you write down a big question like that, there is a good chance you're probably not going to hear anything else that I'm talking about for the duration of that particular session. So I'll warn you that if you believe there is a seven-year tribulation to come, sooner or later you're going to write that down in your notes. What about a seven-year tribulation? Question mark. Just write it down as what about the seven-year tribulation? And just forget about it until we come to that place. Don't get all hung up on a question, on one question especially. Just write it down, and, 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 and as the interpretation unfolds, then you can just cross them off on your notes as we go through this. They'll be answered by the end, but certainly not by the end of session one, two, or three. You're probably wondering now how many sessions there are. 264, I'm sorry. <laughs> There's quite a few sessions. Uh, and we could be looking at a, a minimum of probably around at least 14 sessions, give or take. This is not a small book. And there's a lot of details. Well, it could go up to 24 sessions if you guys don't like to stay just a little bit longer. But uh, here's, here's the thing. All I'm saying is please hang in there. That's what I'm asking. Even if you disagree with me at the end, and which very well could be, it's not going to threaten me if you do. I mean, can, can we just tonight, before we even get started, agree on one thing? That this course will undoubtedly glorify Jesus Christ as Lord of all. And I think whether you agree with me, basically, you have to agree with me, essentially, that Jesus Christ is Lord of all and the interpretation that I want to present to you from the book of Revelation states that as clearly as I know. So let's come to this first session. And, and, and as I do so, it is, it is here that we ask how we interpret the book of Revelation. This is very key. We, we have to ask questions. What is this book all about? I mean, there's no point diving into it with a preconceived idea. That's what I want to underscore here. The, the truth is, the only way to interpret the scripture is exe exegetical. And I say that because the word exegetical simply means let the Bible speak out to or at you. The, the other way of doing it is exegetical. And I say exegetical, which means you come to the Bible having already preconceived what it's going to say, 
and you speak into it in your own interpretation and say, you know, <coughs> there the Bible agrees with me because you know, but trust me, that's no way to hear God speak. So first, I want to come not to the first chapter to study it, but to the whole book here tonight, and to say, what is this book about? I need to come to the whole book and say, to say, what is this book about? I, I need the whole book and to look at the whole book as if I've never, ever read it before. I've never heard a message preached on it before. And, and as I come to this book, and I know nothing about it, and I come to it like a little kid to this book, then it's in the power of the Holy Spirit we ask, what, is this, what does this mean? So let's remember that, first of all, A, it's a book. This can be applied, what I'm about to share, to every book of the Bible. It's a great way to study the Bible. When the men who wrote the Bible wrote the Bible, they did so in terms of the book, a book that began. It began normal, earthly, human grammar with syntax. It was written in a certain place by a certain man to a certain people in a certain historical context. And until I know that, I have absolutely no way of finding out what it has to say. I've said many a time, as you've heard me share, I like to get into the heads of the people who are receiving this letter, receiving this book. I want to be thinking what they're thinking. I want to be hearing what they're hearing. I want to know what they're walking through, what they're going through. So, you know, wh what I'm saying is basically, let's say I, I wrote a letter to you. And let's suppose that I wrote it to you from Washington, D.C. And I mentioned just in passing certain things that had to do with the Biden administration. Didn't say whether it was good or bad. I just said I had mentioned some things. So let's say now in 4,000 years, they find that letter. I, I think we would kind of feel cheated if the people 4,000 years from now just read it as if it had just been written not that long ago. In order to understand it, I would expect them to probably do a little bit of research and ask the question, who is this Beth fellow? I mean, I, I would want them to at least find out who this person was who lived in 2022. They, they may not find out, but I hope they would at least try. I, I, would, I would really expect them to discover what Washington is. And I would expect them to find out what a Biden administration is and what that means. And I would expect them to find out who you are. Only then are they going to really find out what that letter was all about. And I hope you appreciate what I'm, what I'm saying here as far as where I'm leading this. Because when I come to the book of Revelation, I can't just say, Ooh, prophecy, it must be for us. Why should it be? I mean, I can't say that unless, first of all, I have asked questions of this book. Who wrote it? To whom was it written? When was it written? Why was it written? What was the historical context? See, what you're going to get in this session and what I'm trying to show you is, is this is about teaching. And this is solid teaching, and it's going to take a while to walk through it. But, you know, it, it's, it's, it's quite easy because 
in reference to that letter I talked about because, you know, it's, it's not 4,000 years old. It's 2,000 years old, which is really a not a long period of time historically teaching or, or speaking. So when was the book written? It was written approximately at A.D. 95. And I say that because it tells me a lot right there, as we'll see in a moment. Who was it written by? Obviously, it was written by John, and traditionally, John the Apostle. He was very much alive in 95 or A.D. 95. Even though he was a really old man at that point, he was the youngest of the apostles. I mean, when he began to follow Jesus, he was probably no more than 16 or 17 years old at that time, and he was the very last of the apostles. So you have this old, old man who had been banished to the island of Patmos, which is an island in the Mediterranean, and he wrote this book after he received the revelation of God. He wrote it to seven real churches that were on the mainland, over which he had been pastor and for an overseer. That's important to understand. All seven churches, he had been the pastor and overseer. Seven churches. And understand, it, there weren't just seven churches. There were a whole lot more churches on the mainland, but these seven churches were very strategically placed churches so that when they got a copy of this book, having read it themselves, then they could pass it on to those who were around them. And in most cases, these churches, uh, they, they stood at the head of a valley and and they passed beyond where they were to all these other churches. And so when they got this book, they could just do that, make sure it got well circulated. So what I'm saying is here is a very real historical situation. So let's bring the book back down to earth. John wrote it from what I would call a real devil's island. It's referred to as, it's called Patmos. And he wrote it to seven strategically placed churches who were going to pass it on to others. So you can gather that from that verse we just read, John said in verse 9 that he was on the island of Patmos. And he goes on to say in verse 11, what you see, write it in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamus, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, to Laodicea. These were very real churches, again. So at this point, I just want to underline it because I've run into a lot of other interpretations of revelations that immediately assume that all seven churches are just symbolic. And I have to ask again the question, why should they be? If I wrote to the church at Ravenna, why should that be a, a symbolic name? It's not, uh, Ravenna's real. Take a look. You got people right beside you. Are they real? Okay, don't answer that question. All right. But, you know, we're talking real, historical place. And, and so we take that as it stands. Now, why was John on Patmos? And what was the condition of the churches of that day? It's huge to understand this. It was, it was pretty rough, to be honest with you. John is on Patmos because he had been banished there. His crime, 
was that he was a Christian. We know from Roman history that an emperor who was reigning over the Roman Empire was, this guy was crazy. His name was Domitian. Domitian was from around 86, 87, 80, 86, 87 to 96. So he's got that reign, and, and just note, if you will, that this is basically written in A.D. 95, the year before Domitian is assassinated. So Domitian, again, he's a fanatic emperor when it comes to emperor worship. In the Roman Empire, it was more or less there all the time. I mean, it just, it just was. But it always depended upon the emperor. It was, you know... It, it, it's what held the empire together. It was called emperor worship. By emperor worship, I mean once a year, every member of the Roman Empire would have to go down, stand before the city fathers, raise his hands up and say, Caesar, which is the Roman emperor, Caesar is Lord, is God. And as a result of that, he would then take a pinch of incense and drop it in the flames in front of a statue of Caesar, and, and there he, admit, he would admit that Caesar is God. So depending on the emperor, that was something that was either enforced or, or just was let go. And Domitian was, well, he was fanatical. He, he began every one of his letters or each of the bills that he passed through the Senate with the words, your Lord and your God Domitian, and he speaks. He said, whenever he gave a speech, he began it by saying, thus says your Lord God Domitian. And when he entered a theater, anyone, everyone had to stand and, and worship him and state, our Lord, our Lady, our God. Now, understand, he had a thing about Christians. Because Christians would not stand before a statue of the emperor and say he is Lord. In fact, many of them would just stand there and simply say, Jesus is Lord. And that was the whole issue. Do, do you remember when the disciples, for example, went to Thessalonica? That was the issue even back in the book of, of Acts. The whole thing against them was that they were preaching another king, Jesus. And that, 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 that whole thing, I mean... Who, uh, that's the issue that it comes down to. I mean, who is Lord and God? Is it Caesar of Rome or is it Jesus? And, 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 and what you're getting into here is that some emperors could have cared less. They, they really did. And, and, and the Christians at that time had it easy. But you're talking about that reign of Domitian from 87 to 96. And, and when Domitian came in, all the pressure was on because Christians resolutely stood firm. Jesus Christ is Lord and God. Now, this isn't enforced all over the Roman Empire. And when I say that, not only did it depend upon the emperor, it depended on the officials in the far-flung empire, I mean, because you're talking the Roman Empire, that's the world, the known world. But if you, if you trace the history of emperor worship 
you got to ask the question, where did it begin? And it actually began in Pergamum a long time ago, but that's where it began. And I say that because as we lay the base, you have to understand the Roman emperors had done so much good for the people. I mean, let's face it. They gave them roads. They, bought them, they brought them civilization. And the response of the populace was to worship the Caesar that had done it. It was right there in the middle of those seven churches that John was overseer of. That emperor worship actually began, which was, again, instituted by the populace. So the first temple that was ever built to honor Caesar was built right there within the seven churches. And it was the most fanatical area in the world for the worship of the emperor. Therefore, when John refused to bow to the emperor, he was banished to the island of Patmos, which is a small rock out there in the, on the, on a, a rock island in the Mediterranean, and, and they, they worked in the marble mines, packing marble out of the rock all day long. Now, I, I'll say it again. He's an old man in his 80s at least. He's on the edge of his 90s. And he is hacking rock with chains hanging all over him. The particular banishment that John had meant that those chains would be with him for the rest of his life. He was manacled around his wrists, around his, around his ankles. He, he, he lived on bread and water. He slept on the ground. And he had done that for a number of years at this particular point. On the mainland, because of their refusal to bow to Caesar, there were many Christians who, uh, let's say, have lost their jobs. The reason I say that is because today we know unions, right? And you're hearing a lot about it with the railroad right now and teachers and so forth. I mean, it's nothing new when it comes to unions. Unions are as old as the Bible. And the unions that the Roman Empire knew always had a patron deity. Remember that. And, and over the patron deity would be the emperor. Let's say you join the auto mechanics union. And I doubt if they had that then, but, you know, it'll do for tonight. The patron deity, let's say, was Venus. Now, if you are going to join the union, it meant that whenever the union meets, you got to worship Venus. The worship of Venus included all kinds of immorality and sexual orgies, and, and Christians says, I, I, I can't join the union. So they'd say, well, then you're out. And, and so you couldn't get a job, and Christians were known on the mainland of Asia at that time as being jobless. If you were a Christian, it meant that you had no right to your home. If the people in town wanted to come and take your furniture, they could take it. The police is not going to stop them. You were less than a dog. And, and you couldn't even worship the emperor. Christians would not do it. I mean, they, they, so, so they were called traitors. They wouldn't worship the deed. So they were called third-class citizens and were lower in the eyes of the law and the country. They were lower than slaves. If anybody wanted to come take your house, let them take it because the police are not going to stop them. Christians were those who were bullied by everyone, 
thrown out on the streets. They lived in caves and in the outskirts of the towns many times. Most of them did not have jobs, as I said, and those who did have jobs would end up losing them. Many of them lost their lives when, when they were brutally murdered because of Christianity. It really should be noted in the first verse where it says, God gave this to John. And, and I'm going to quote some of these things from the Amplified to kind of bring it out a little bit more. It, it says, God gave it to him to disclose and make known to his bondservants. Who was this letter written to? Well, that was the historical context. In the middle of that context, it was written to bondservants. Bondservants means slave out of love. I, I love Jesus, and I love him to the point where I am willing to stand up and to be counted. I am his slave forever. Now, understand the term Christian, because if you were... Let's say if you were my, let's say this row right here was my slaves. Yeah, yeah the, re the reason I'm saying this right here is because you can't see how they're looking at me now. <laughs> and, you know, because, you know, the reason for that is, is if they were my slaves, it would be a mouthful in Greek to say the slaves of Pastor Beck. And so you would be called Pastor Beckianus. Anionis on the end simply means the slave of, slave of Beck. So Christians got that name because the pagans would hear them talk about someone called Christ, and they, the Christians would always be saying that they belonged to him exclusively, and they were his slaves. So they nicknamed them the Christianus, the Christianus, the slaves of the of the Christ is what it means. If, if you're going to take your stand in the middle of, of this historical situation as we've just described, you had better be the slaves of Jesus. Look, there is nowhere in the Bible, certainly nowhere in the book of Revelations, where you can even smell the idea of, well, bless God, I have been saved out of hell. <laughs> I smile at that because they didn't think of, they didn't think in those kind of terms back then. There, there was no such thing as an appeal like, would you like to go to heaven when you die? That, that didn't exist. It was more instead, it was, would you like to become a Christian and come to heaven with me tomorrow? To become a Christian meant death. And it was very, very real. Notice the word that, that comes in, in verse 1 here. And it, it, it talks about his angel to his bondservant, if, if you'll notice it. It was written, he sent, <laughs> he, and he sent and communicated it through his angels to his bondservant, Jesus. So John includes himself with this. And, and, and the designation of a Christian one, again, who is totally surrendered to Jesus Christ. Then it says, who bore witness, who bore witness. Notice the word witness, that's in verse 1. It goes on to say, testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, what I'm wanting you to notice 
especially the word witness, and that it is linked to the word testimony. Because the original Greek, witness, and it's linked to the word testimony, it, the word is martyr. If you're looking at witness and testimony joined together, it, it is the word martyr. And of course, in our minds, to be honest with you, we've separated those two words over the years, and, and the word witness has kind of been degenerated it's 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 been devalued. Uh, there was there was time when if you opened your mouth to give witness about Jesus Christ, there was a strong chance that you would pay for that with your life. That was why they never separated the idea of martyr and witness. A witness was one who had a martyr mentality. Now, I'm asking you to remember that because we'll be coming across that as we go throughout this book. It is one of the themes. So let me just simply repeat it again. As far as these early Christians were concerned, if you're going to give witness or testimony to Jesus Christ, you have a martyr mentality. In other words, you have already faced the issue that because of who I am, I could be dead by the end of the day. If they were to suddenly burst in on you and arrest you in order to kill you, that would not be a big surprise to you because you have faced the fact that, you know, when you walked into the waters of baptism, when you were baptized as a Christian, you really did say, you know what, I'm exiting this world and it could just be that before the sun sets, before sundown, I'll be dead. It was a martyr mentality. It was a horrible time. A, a, a martyr is a witness, and a witness could well be a martyr. It is all tied together in the Greek, is what I'm trying to tell you, and in the minds of the early Christians. Now, we've got to understand that any interpretation that we have of this book of Revelations has to do or has to be with all these facts that I'm giving you in mind. I cannot morally, honestly come to this book of Revelations and disregard this. This book was written to people under persecution of such a degree if they opened their mouths and confessed they were Christians, they had already, they had all, they had better already have faced up to martyrdom. And, 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 and they were living that martyrdom. And, and, and as, as a banishment like John or, or lose their homes or lose their jobs. But you could not just slide through life if you were going to be a Christian. That is the people this book is written to. Hold, hold every one of those points in your mind as we go throughout this interpretation. As we come to this book, we have to be hugely careful that we know the mind of the Holy Spirit. Don't ever underestimate him. The first rule that we've got to apply in interpreting the book is that we must take into account the Christians that it was written to. I will never understand this book until I get again, at least in part, inside their heads and, 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 and understand with these people that it was written to. You know, it, it's, it's like what I'm going to do is I'm going to hear this book read to me through their ears then I'll step closer to understanding. Now, I mean, not just, 
I'm not going to suppose that this book was written for the early 2022 era and as yet totally unfulfilled. Just supposing that this book awaits a future time before it happens. If that's the case, then I have got to find that that is plainly written, plainly stated to those first century Christians. I mean, they got to understand that, right? I mean, when they read this book, having read it, they will have to close it and say, we understand that there is nothing in this book for us. It still waits for another 2,000 years before it's going to be fulfilled. So, you know, stick it on the shelf. Come back at it at another 2,000 years. That, that's the point I'm wanting to get across right at this moment. Because if God wrote this book to the people living in the 2000s or in a time yet future to 2022 and did not tell those first century readers, then he's, he's cheating them because they thought it was for them. He, he, he says, write to the churches in Asia. Write it to them. Hello? Supposing I wrote you a letter, but I didn't tell you that I actually wrote it to somebody who has not yet been born yet. But I pretend to write it to you, and, and, and I made a great big promise to you in that letter, but I didn't really mean it for you because it was really kind of like a trick. It was for somebody who's not been born yet. Uh, that's going to be low. And, and it would be cheating unless, of course, I put in the letter that this is not for you. You follow me there? We will find out if that is what it says but it does say so. It, it must say it very plainly because the first people who read this book were first century Christians. In fact, I would go as far to say the only way I can read this book is as if I'm reading it over their shoulders. You get that picture? I'm reading it as they're reading it over their shoulders. This, this was written to the seven churches in Asia. 2,000 years later, I'm looking over their shoulder and saying, oh, is that what it says? It was written to them basically, but I will never understand it until I first understand what it means to the first century believers and receivers of the letter. So we, we got to understand that, 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 that very plainly. And a second conclusion or inclusion is what I should say, that, is, that we pick up in our interpretation is that this book promises a unique blessing to everyone who reads it. Now notice again what it says in verse 3. It says, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. Realize it doesn't say blessed are all the first century readers. I mean, it was written, first of all, for the first century, but also anyone who reads this book is going to be blessed out of their skin. In, in, a, first century, in a first century Christian, as, as he reads this book, he's going to be blessed because there is so, there's no other blessing like that that's attached to any other book in the New Testament. Also, anybody in the 1300s, the 1500s, the 2000s. If they read this book, they're going to be blessed with the same unique blessing 
because it is an open-ended blessing. Hello. Number one, we've got to take into account the people that it was written to. Number two, we understand that the blessing is for all the people of all the times who will ever read this book or hear it read. Number three, I don't think you could have gone to these people and said, we're going to have a prophecy crusade. <laughs> they weren't interested in prophecy crusades at that time with what they're going through. They might be dead tomorrow morning. Dead lost his job last night because he confessed Jesus as Lord, who's interested in an era of history that hasn't come yet. If God says you are going to read this book, but it is all about a far distant future, then God mocks them when he says you are going to be blessed out of your skin. When I come home having been beaten up, and my wounds are, are still bleeding. And, and I come home to find that they've ransacked my house and that my children are living in caves. Who, who gives a rip of who the Antichrist is? God bless Henry Kissinger. If, if, <laughs> if I'm going to read a book that is going to bless me, then it has got to meet me in my pain. And it has got to meet me in my despair. The book has got to meet me where I am. So whatever interpretation we find in this book, it must be intensely practical to people who are under persecution. It must meet the man under persecution in A.D. 95 or in A.D. 1540 or in 2022. Wherever we find ourselves in history, God said, here's a blessing. And he gave it under the worst situation. So wherever you find yourself, it, it would be a blessing. That is a principle of interpretation. Where you go from there, honestly, is between you and, and God. It's, it's, it, it, is, it is something between you and the Holy Spirit. But these things you've got to hold in your mind. Something else as we lay these foundations of how we read the scripture, when I come to any book in the Bible, I've got to ask the question, what kind of literature is this? If I wrote you a novel, or if I wrote you a book of poems, you would read the, <laughs> the novel differently than you would read the poems, I, I think. I'm not sure. I don't know. I like to... There, there's certain things that you do in poetry that you don't do in novels, in other words. So with any other book, you must ask, what kind of literature is this? And this very first verse tells me. It says, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. Now, here's what's important. The original Greek there is, he, and do me a favor, don't just listen to me or accept my word, is it? Look it up. I mean, research it. See if what Pastor Beck is saying is what he's saying. And it's in the Greek here, it means that he sent and, and made it known by signs and symbols. He made it known by signs, symbols, and tokens. That's the original Greek. Signs, symbols, and tokens. So he communicated it. It wasn't just something that was straightforward. It was done by a certain mode 
of communication. So when you come to this book and you begin to go through it, you begin to understand right from the very beginning, from, from the very first verses, that the communication of this book is through signs, symbols, and tokens. So whatever we find in the book, what we're going to see is, is as I approach this book, I must understand that, number one, whatever I find here is symbolic, okay? So, one, I'm going to come to cities. I'm going to find a city called Jerusalem. I'm going to find a city called the New Jerusalem. I'm going to find a Babylon. You got that? I know some of you are still writing, but I'm going to go on here. I'll find a river called the Great Euphrates. I'll find a great lumbering beast. I'll find a little woolly lamb. And I'll also find another lamb as it had been slain that's full of eyes, horns. I find a woman sitting on a beast that lumbers across the desert and, and she has a cup of blood. Now, as I approach this book, I have to get one thing in my head. It tells me this is not an ordinary, what we would call a narrative. This is not a straightforward novel form. This is a book of signs, symbols, and tokens. So when I meet a city called Jerusalem, even though I, I do not know what it is, I, I, I know it's not Jerusalem, right? For a symbol, and this is the key about symbols, a symbol is pointing away to something else. Symbols always, always point away to something else. When I meet a place called Babylon, I, I, I may not know what it is pointing to, but I, I know it's only a sign. It is not the city of Babylon itself. But when I see a beast in, in all of its grotesqueness, right, I, I, I may not find what the beast is pointing me to, but let me not say it is a literal beast. Because I was warned to begin with that these are signs, symbols, and tokens. So, next question. What is the atmosphere of the book? Now, that's a, another question you always have to ask, really. And I suggest to all of you, and you're not going to like me for this, but I'm going to give you a homework assignment. And that is that you would read through this book at least 15 to 20 times. Right? Yeah. You should have done it by now for some of you. But I say that because gradually, as you soak your head in this book, you begin to feel that you are in some kind of cosmic opera. There's a choir, and there's a lot of singing, and you feel as, as, as long as you, you, you keep inside John's head that, that you're sitting in the middle of some stage. It's, it's huge to know the atmosphere. But say you're John, and you've gone into your cave on the side of Patmos, and and you're looking at the Mediterranean Sea, and, 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 and you, you know, above you is this bright dome of a sky, and behind you is the darkness of the cave, and you are sitting there. And then suddenly, the whole place explodes, and you begin to see all around you just all these moving pictures, so to speak, because it started, and, and you hear this trumpet, you know, kind of thing. And, and, and you turn around, and you see, you see something that, 
that, that, that basically is, is, is just totally indescribable. And, and so you, you give, in, in symbolic form, a picture of Jesus. And then he tells you, write. And you grab your pen and you begin to write as he dictates the seven letters to the seven churches. And you turn around and suddenly the whole scene then changes as if you have stepped into another half of the universe. And right in the middle there, it seems over the sea, but the sea isn't there anymore. I mean, you're seeing a great big moving opera almost, all kind of thing. It just fills the whole sky. And you want, you're in the best outdoor movie theater you've ever been to because you have this, this surround sound with them and everything. And in the very center, the very center you see a throne. And the whole thing is, is in symbolic pictures. Then you see a lamb appearing. And it's moving towards the throne, and he takes a book, and then you see one of the grotesque creatures beside the throne and say, and, and, and say, come, right? And, and then galloping horses uh, across the universe, and a man you have on a white horse, and, and he has hardly gone when another voice says, come. And then here comes a red horse, and you see it is all moving, and the, and, and, and the whole universe is cosmic. And then, you, you know, you're, you're gasping. What, what in the earth is going on? What am I seeing? It seems that the whole stage goes dark. And you hear a voice, and it says, Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000. And the whole role of Israel, 140,000. So, I mean, you look again, and you see a number that no man can count now. They're all waving palm branches. And they're singing. Then you hear singing, worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb. And it keeps coming all through this. I don't know how else to call it, but an opera from my, my background. That's the way I kind of see it. And suddenly, one of the actors on stage, I mean, he had been center stage at one point, but now he's kind of off to the side there. But he comes and says, come with me. So, so you go. And now you're walking onto the stage, and you suddenly feel under your feet this, this sand, and you're in the desert, and there, you know, you've got this lumbering across in front of you is this great beast, and on it sits a woman in scarlet, and you're on the stage, and you're part of the action now. And another time he says, would you like to see the lamb's wife? And you suddenly feel yourself going through you know, space and air or whatever. And you land on top of this great mountain. And you see something coming out of the sky. The great city, the new Jerusalem. And, and you're given a ruler and you're told what? Go measure the thing. And everything is going on. And, 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 and you're John, okay? And you're writing all this down as fast as you can. And, and, and even in the Greek in, in which John wrote, it, it backs me up with this. You see, the funny thing about John is John was essentially a Hebrew, and he never did think in Greek. He had a, a, you know, a go at trying to learn it, but it, it's, I mean, you know what I'm talking about. If you've ever learned Spanish or French, and while you're trying to do Spanish or French, you think English, and then interpret that into Spanish, it comes out terrible because you didn't think in Spanish. So John thought in Hebrew, and when he wrote, he made it Greek so everybody could read it. <laughs> well, that should tell you something, because if you, if you, if you take the, a look at the history, do a little bit of research there, when he did anything official, he always had a whole group of people with him in Ephesus where he was the overseer, 
and they would correct all his grief. But here on the island of Patmos, there's nobody to correct him. And he was just writing as fast as he can. The result was that the book of Revelation, in the original Greek, is the worst Greek in the New Testament. It's terrible, honestly. It, it was obviously written by somebody who's thinking in Hebrew, but he's writing in Greek. And, and I say that because he didn't even have time to take a look at the last sentence that he just wrote. So whoever wrote the book of Revelation is writing as fast as he can, following it, following it all at the same time. So uh, there you are. You're, you're on stage now, which is the center of the universe. And all around you, you have all this action that's taking place. It's changing so fast, but you have to keep looking, looking, looking. And I want to say that because as we come to this book, I don't want us to come with a magnifying glass trying to nitpick over every detail. What appeared to John was a picture, and then it's gone. Another picture. It's gone. And that's how it would work all the way through. What I want to find out is, what does that picture mean? I'm not particularly concerned with some of the details. I mean, I, I've read books like, for example, with Revelation on Revelation 9, where it talks about some creatures that have faces like men, hair like women, tails like scorpions, and they go into such detail. For example, the eyes of the men. What, what do they really mean? Quite frankly, I'll tell you the truth. I, I don't know what they meant. But I'll tell you this. When I look at the whole picture, I can for sure see what it means. The whole picture. The details, I'm, I'm going to be not too sure about on something. But I wonder if we were ever meant to be too sure about it. We're supposed to get the picture as this takes place across this cosmic stage. You do realize there are things within the scripture that the Holy Spirit says to you, none of your business. You know what I'm talking about? Take, take for example, antediluvian civilization. What's that? Well, that's, that's the years prior to the flood. That's the thousands, the several thousands of years before, about 2,000 actually, about 2,000 years before the flood is called the antediluvian civilization. After the flood, there's a huge difference with the family of Noah and so forth. Before, they'd lived to what? 800, 900 years old. Could you, could you imagine? Could, I'm serious. Could you imagine Leroy living to be 2,000 years old? Think about it. Think of, you want to talk dinosaurs? Let's talk. Let's talk about, uh, because your reptiles don't ever stop growing. They keep growing as, as big. I mean, we humans, we stop. But a reptile keeps growing. Well, again, a reptile is going to take a lizard, man, it's 2,000 years old. I'm staying away from it. It's huge. But again, the mind of man, the understanding of man, the science of man, it was phenomenal. I mean, they have, they, we're just now learning the mathematics that came out of the antediluvian civilization. That's the crazy thing. And, and all this around us, I mean, can you imagine? Look at where we've come from, from the time of Noah to where we are today. And imagine a world that's covered with people on top of it. Now, why don't we know more about the end to the Libyan civilization? Because the Holy Spirit says those are your business. It comes to where Noah picks up because this is about the Messiah, the chosen. Oh, well, we'll get to that in a second. 
here's the thing I want, I want to say to you. What does this book say about itself? Because if I'm going to interpret it correctly, at least I should stay within what it states about itself. And, and that is, he was buried, he has risen again, and he has been coordinated as king. He has given us the Holy Spirit. And unless I take that into consideration, I'm never going to understand this book. I'm going to say something here, and I hope you write it down. Because to me, this is huge. This is not a revelation of the second coming. It is a revelation of him. There is a big difference here. It is concerning what he has done, but because it is of him, then it is who he now is, his now relationship to the universe, the world of men, and it also takes in all that he has for, in store for us for the future. It takes in, in, in store as well his second coming and eternal reign, but the book is about him. I believe this is the only way we can interpret interpret those passages like the third verse of the first chapter. Also in chapter 3, verse 11, and in a number of times in chapter, uh, last chapter 22, and in those chapters in the verse, it states this, that he is coming soon or that the time is near. I don't know if you'll bear witness with me, but that used to bother me a little bit because this was 2,000 years ago. And still he hasn't come. Woo, right? But then when I realize it's not talking about his second coming, it's talking about him, what is the greatest thing we can know about Jesus Christ? It is that when he died and rose again, he accomplished and finished everything there was to do. He put away sin. He completely defeated the devil. And he rose again carrying his church into the heavenly places. It is finished. <laughs> it's done. It's finished. Revelations, friend, is built on that. If he had finished, finished, finished and there's nothing more to do then whatever else happens has got to be soon i uh, don't know if you're seeing what i'm saying but it was written from the backdrop that everything's done so we're not waiting for something to be done there are those who say whatever is coming compared to what has happened it's here in, in that sense we live in tension it's done and yet so what what i'm saying is we are caught there between the two, but not with despair tension, but with a glorious tension, such as been done, that, that whatever else has to be is, is only because it's already been done. So it's only going to be an unveiling, the making manifest of that which has already been done. It will, it, it's, it, that must be soon. So every Christian throughout the ages lives in the soonness. They're not looking for this idea that there is a great battle that's coming between the devil and Jesus, and they're going to battle it out, and a thousand years of just making it, and the devil's going to win again, round four now, ding, ding, ding. No, the book of Revelation says it's done. 
It's finished. It's over. There are no more big battles. It's done. There's a mopping up operation, but, uh, but it's done. Therefore, behold, I come quickly. It is soon. And we don't look for some big accomplishment. It's merely making manifest of what already is. It's done. So it is the unveiling of Jesus Christ, who he was, therefore who he is, and therefore what he shall do. In that sense, it begins to unfold history to me in the light of the end. We don't think of history in the light of the end. We think of history in the light of the past or the now. In the light, uh, what I'm saying, whereas Revelation teaches me to interpret what is happening right now in the light of the end. Hmm. Therefore, everything that happens today has already been judged, not by the past and not by the present, but by the end. Revelation says, don't judge history by now or don't say, look at this or look at that. Rather, understand that every, every move of history must now be judged with the end in view. So over and over again in the book of Revelations where we see Jesus Christ is in the past and understand the present in the light that he is my future and there is no more it's all him, friend. That's what I'm trying to say. It's all him. So all history is to be judged in the light of Jesus Christ. Listen. Uh, these people that the book was written to were not theologians. And when you were being beat up for your faith and you don't go to a long, you don't go to a long drawn out Bible study of weeks on end, trying to find out what it means. You need to know. It's got to be simple. Jesus does not send a message and then make it so difficult that nobody can understand it. On the other hand, it must be so difficult so that you don't have any pagan, certainly no emperor or his police force that can understand it. So the code that, that, that interprets the symbols that reveals to me Jesus must be, you know, so crazily, utterly simple that the newest Christian, at least, has got the key, right? But here's the thing. Most righteous pagans who do not have the Old Testament don't know what it's talking about. You know what the church's problem is? We don't know our Bible. We know about it, but we don't know it. We have made it difficult. God makes it simple. But he puts the book at the end of the Bible. Have you noticed that Revelations is at the end of the Bible? And, and it, it, what it does is it gives us 65 books which come before it and then fills this book with echoes and allusions to, uh, to every other book of the Bible. What we're going to see, though, is that through that almost every verse of the book of Revelation has a direct or implied reference to another part of the Bible. And as you go back to that part of the Bible, you're going to find, bam, I've got the key. We have mentioned Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem. 
uh, obviously, the, the rest of the Bible is what? Full of Jerusalem. Find out what Jerusalem was in the Bible, and you've got the key to what is mentioned in Revelation. Babylon? Babylon is mentioned from Genesis chapter 10 all the way through Malachi. You, you go back to Genesis 10 and, and clue in at, at one or two places. You know what Babylon means in Revelations. You say beast. You, you, you take a look at it and you'll find Mike in the book of Revelations. I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. I just You say, you say beast and, and you're going to look at the Old Testament and it's full of, it's full of them. But you say, but what about when there was blood in the sea and hail from the sky? That, that's in the Old Testament too. All we have to do is go back. And when you go back, you got the key. What about the two witnesses? Ever read Deuteronomy? The key is there. Deuteronomy tells you what the two witnesses are. On and on it goes throughout the scripture. God made it so simple. He said, if you are born, if you're a born-again believer, and in the first century they had the Old Testament, friend. He said, if you have read the Old Testament, you will know what it means. A Roman comes along and reads it and says, ha, 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 I knew it. These guys are nuts. He doesn't know what it means. The code is only for the initiated, the, those who are born again and have an Old Testament that's in their hands. And you'll see that as we go through how simple that becomes. So here we are. We have these cosmic pictures that are rapidly moving across the stage. And those cosmic pictures are, are unveiling to us Jesus Christ. They're, they're showing us, in a word, things that, well, what they're showing us is that things are not what they seem to be. God has unchanging decrees. He is unfolding them in and through Jesus Christ. Satan is behind the world. It doesn't look like it. The world may seem very quiet and very normal. <laughs> but behind it all, there is an evil mind that is working. Revelation unveils that and says what? Don't worry. Jesus has already defeated Satan. Hang in there. It's mopping up time. And Satan is defeated before he has even gotten started. And suddenly, I discover <laughs> I'm going to live forever. My eternal dimension is unveiled to me, and the whole thing is in relationship to Jesus Christ. If you read this book and study it, you will discover that what you thought was a very real world out there is not such a real world at all. Behind it, there is the real world and the world where Jesus Christ is centered. The demons are under his feet. And the purpose of God are achieving their end. All based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. The outline of this book is simple. And we'll find that there are seven visions. And I want to close with this tonight. Seven times over, God, you know, in this book, starts with what Jesus did on the cross, moves then through with an interpretation of what is happening now because of that and ends with the grand finale 
of what we shall call the second coming. Having done that, it moves back to the finished work of Christ on the cross, moves through with an interpretation of another view of what is happening and ends with a grand end with Jesus Christ returning to the world and a whole new world beginning. Back again, start again with the finished work of Christ, moving through yet another aspect that interprets what is going on today in the light of the cross and ends in the final judgment and the eternal reign of Jesus Christ. Seven times over it does this. So what I want to do very quickly so that you have an idea of what we're coming up to, told you to be a long base that we'd lay down tonight. Let's break down what we're going to see. The first vision, chapters 1 through 3, which show us Christ in the middle of his church, which in turn is in the middle of the world. Christ in the middle of his church, which in turn is in the middle of the world. Second vision, chapters 4 through 7, they portray the church in trial and persecution. The church in trial and persecution. The third vision that we'll cover in, ver in chapters 8 through 11 shows that the church is protected. It's triumphant, friend. In fact, God avenged the church. Those who dare to touch the church are touched by God. I get excited about this. When you get into this and you see this, that's why I'm talking about blessing you out of your socks when you begin to see some of this stuff. And, and the fourth vision, chapters 12 through 14, Christ in his church opposes the satanic trinity. In the fifth vision, chapters 15 through 16, shows me the wrath of God, which falls on those who will not repent. I got to watch, man. My mind's going everywhere. Sixth vision, chapter 17 through 19, shows me the fall of Babylon and the destruction of all the beasts that rose against God. Then you have the final vision, which is in chapters 20 through 22, which shows the judgment of Satan made manifest, the eternal victory of Christ and the church forever and ever and ever and ever. Can somebody say amen? What I'm saying is we shall cover those seven visions. If you think this is a short trip, this was a long one. These sessions will not be as long as tonight was. So wake up the person on the other side of you and tell them it's going to be okay. But I say that because I could not stop in the middle of this and try to pick this up next week and have it make sense to you. But here's what I'm trying to tell you. We shall cover those seven visions. And I believe at the, at the end of that time, we, listen to me very carefully, this is the main reason why I'm doing this. As I look at the world today, and I look at the seasons today, and and, and please understand me, I'm not trying to knock anything or, or rival anything or be in competition with anything. But, but when I hear things like, you know, and, and I agree, there's seasons which we know and we, we talk about it must be soon, but surely, you know, and I've heard this all my life. You've heard it all your life. Older ones heard it back in World War I and World War II and all this other. But, and, and, and that's the thing. I, I, I believe that at the end of 
our studies, we're going to know that things are not what they seem to be. Is Christ coming again? Yes, he is. Is he coming soon? I really hope so. But the bottom line is, this book is not about that. It's about him. But in being about him, it brings that in. So when I look at things in this world, I'm not saying he's coming soon. I'm seeing what the end is declaring. And I'm seeing not only the end declaring, but I know those who try to touch the church get touched by God. That things aren't what they seem to be. The enemy is not, is not winning. He's been defeated. And that's what this, mm, mm, mm. in other words, the lamb reigns. Can somebody say amen? I'll give him praise. He's worthy of it. Stand with me and say, man, I haven't sat that long in a long time. I am very excited about this. And again, I, I, I apologize for the length of time, but this base has to be put down. If we don't have the answers about the book and about the people, about the historical context, what they're going through, what's taking place, what John's writing down, what God is, re mm, then, you know, I'm sorry. It's just going to, it's going to go in a zillion different directions. It's, it's going to be like one plus one equals three. And if you're off there, well, then one plus two is obviously going to equal four. It just doesn't work that way. So we need to understand. Now, I will, again, advise you, please read through these scriptures, especially breaking down the visions. And don't read it just once. Read it several times. And, and number two, don't be afraid to go back and listen to the videos or even the audio to go over it again to catch what you didn't get. It's right there for you. But what I'm asking you to do is not just attend. And remember to write down the questions. Don't get obsessed about them. You know, every, the bottom line is Christ is going to be glorified one way or another. Hello? And the reality of that is he reigns. Lord, thank you for them. Bless them. Encourage them. Strengthen them. Stir up in the, within them. Let us continue to know your wisdom and your understanding. Open our eyes. Let us continue to know a revelation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If there's one thing we've known and come to know from the reading of your scripture, there's always more. There's always more. There's always more. There's always more. And when we come to the reality of the story of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, he reigns. He is King of kings and he's Lord of lords. And nothing in this world is going to deter, take down, or remove that. The end result is, you reign. So blessed be the name of the Lord. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Before you leave the place, at least speak.